Chapter Three, Part Two of Celebrated Crimes, Volume Three, Mary Stuart. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Celebrated Crimes, Volume Three, Mary Stuart by Alexandre Dumas. Chapter Three, Part Two. The Queen, as she announces in her letter to Bothwell, had refused to bring back Darnley with her and had returned alone to edinburgh arrived there she gave orders for the king to be moved in his turn in a litter but instead of taking him to stirling or holyrood she decided to lodge him in the abbey of the kirk of fields the king made some objections when he knew of this arrangement however as he had no power to oppose it he contented himself with complaining of the solitude of the dwelling assigned him but the queen made answer that she could not receive him at the moment either at holyrood or at stirling for fear if his illness were infectious lest he might give it to his son darnley was then obliged to make the best of the abode allotted him it was an isolated abbey and little calculated by its position to dissipate the fears that the king entertained for it was situated between two ruined churches and two cemeteries the only house which was distant about a shot from a crossbow belonged to the hamiltons and as they were Darnley's mortal enemies, the neighbourhood was none the more reassuring. Further, towards the north, rose some wretched huts, called the Thieves' Crossroads. In going round his new residence, Darnley noticed that three holes, each large enough for a man to get through, had been made in the walls. He asked that these holes, through which ill-meaning persons could get in, should be stopped up. It was promised that masons should be sent, but nothing was done, and the holes remained open. The day after his arrival at Kirk of Field, the king saw a light in that house near his which he believed deserted. Next day he asked Alexander Durham whence it came, and he heard that the Archbishop of St. Andrews had left his palace in Edinburgh, and had housed there since the preceding evening. One didn't know why, this news still further increased the king's uneasiness. The Archbishop of St. Andrews was one of his most declared enemies. The king, little by little abandoned by all his servants, lived on the first floor of an isolated pavilion, having about him only the same Alexander Durham, whom we have mentioned already, and who was his valet. Darnley, who had quite a special friendship for him, and who, besides, as we have said, feared some attack on his life at every moment, had made him move his bed into his own apartment, so that both were sleeping in the same room. On the night of the 8th of February, Darnley awoke Durham. He thought he heard footsteps in the apartment beneath him. Durham rose, took a sword in one hand, a taper in the other, and went down to the ground floor. But although Darnley was quite certain he had not been deceived, Durham came up again a moment after, saying he had seen no one. The morning of the next day passed without bringing anything fresh. The Queen was marrying one of her servants named Sebastian. He was an Oviana, whom she had brought with her from France, and whom she liked very much. However, as the king sent word that he had not seen her for two days, she left the wedding towards six o'clock in the evening, and came to pay him a visit, accompanied by the Countess of Argyll and the Countess of Huntley. While she was there, Durham, in preparing his bed, set fire to his palliasse, which was burned as well as a part of the mattress, so that, having thrown them out of the window with all in flames, for fear lest the fire should reach the rest of the furniture, he found himself without a bed, and asked permission to return to the town to sleep. But Darnley, who remembered his terror the night before, and who was surprised at the promptness that had made Durham throw all his bedding out of the window, begged him not to go away, offering him one of his mattresses. 
or even to take him into his own bed. However, in spite of this offer, Durham insisted, saying that he felt unwell, and that he should like to see a doctor the same evening. So the Queen interceded for Durham, and promised Darnley to send him another valet to spend the night with him. Darnley was then obliged to yield, and, making Mary repeat that she would send him someone, he gave Durham leave for that evening. At that moment Paris, of whom the Queen speaks in her letters, came in. He was a young Frenchman who had been in Scotland for some years, and who, after having served with Bothwell and Satan, was at present with the Queen. Seeing him, she got up, and as Darnley still wished to keep her, "'Indeed, my lord, it is impossible,' said she, "'to come and see you. I have left this poor Sebastian's wedding, and I must return to it, for I promised to come mass to his ball.' The king dared not insist. He only reminded her of the promise she had made to send him a servant. Mary renewed it yet once again, and went away with her attendants. As for Durham, he had set out the moment he received permission. It was nine o'clock in the evening. Darnley, left alone, carefully shut the doors within, and retired to rest, though in readiness to rise to let in the servant who should come to spend the night with him. Scarcely he was in bed, than the same noise that he had heard the night before recommenced. This time Darnley listened with all the attention fear gives, and soon he had no longer any doubt that several men were walking about beneath him. It was useless to call, it was dangerous to go out, to wait was the only course that remained to the king. He made sure again that the doors were well fastened, put his sword under his pillow, extinguished his lamp for fear the light might betray him, and waited in silence for his servant's arrival. But the hours passed away, and the servant did not come. At one o'clock in the morning, Bothwell, after having talked some while with the Queen, in the presence of the captain of the guard, returned home to change his dress. After some minutes he came out wrapped in the large cloak of a German hussar, went through the guard-house, and had the castle-gate opened. Once outside he took his way with all the speed to Kirk of Feel, which he entered by the opening in the wall. Scarcely had he made a step in the garden than he met James Balfour, governor of the castle. "'Well,' he said to him, "'how far have we got?' "'Everything is ready,' replied Balfour, "'and we were waiting for you to set the fire to the fuse.' "'That is well,' Bothwell answered. "'But first I want to make sure that he is in his room.' At these words, Bothwell opened the pavilion door with the false key, and, having groped his way up the stairs, he went to listen at Darnley's door. Darnley, hearing no further noise, had ended by going to sleep, but he slept with a jerky breathing which pointed to his agitation. Little mattered it to Bothwell what kind of sleep it was, provided that he was really in his room. He went down again in silence, then, as he had come up, and taking a lantern from one of the conspirators, he went himself into the lower room to see if everything was in order. This room was full of barrels of powder, and a fuse ready prepared, wanted but a spark to set the hole on fire. Bothwell withdrew, then, to the end of the garden with Balfour, David, Chambers, and three or four others, leaving one man to ignite the fuse. In a moment this man rejoined them. There ensued some minutes of anxiety, during which the five men looked at one another in silence, and as if afraid of themselves, then, seeing that nothing exploded, Bothwell impatiently turned round to the engineer, reproaching him for having, no doubt through fear, done his work badly. He assured his master that he was certain everything was all right, and as Bothwell, impatient, wanted to return to the house himself, to make sure, he offered to go back and to see how things stood. In fact, he went back to the pavilion, and, putting his head through a kind of air-hole, he saw the fuse, which was still burning. Some seconds afterwards Bothwell saw him come running back, 
making a sign that all was going well. At the same moment a frightful report was heard. The pavilion was blown to pieces. The town and the firth were lit up with a clearness exceeding the brightest daylight. Then everything fell back into night, and the silence was broken only by the fall of stones and joists, which came down as fast as hail in a hurricane. Next day the body of the king was found in a garden in the neighbourhood. It had been saved from the action of the fire by the mattresses on which he was lying, and as, doubtless, in his terror, he had merely thrown himself on his bed, wrapped in his dressing-gown and his slippers, and as he was found thus, without his slippers, which were flung some paces away, it was believed that he had been first strangled, then carried there. But the most probable version was that the murderers simply relied upon powder, an auxiliary sufficiently powerful in itself for them to have no fear it would fail them. Was the Queen an accomplice or not? No one has ever known save herself, Boswell and God. But yes or no, her conduct, imprudent this time as always, gave the charge her enemies brought against her. If not substance, at least an appearance of truth. Scarcely had she heard the news than she gave orders that the body should be brought to her, and, having had it stretched out upon a bench, she looked at it with more curiosity than sadness. Then the corpse, embalmed, was placed the same evening, without pomp, by the side of Rizzio's. Scottish ceremonial prescribes for the widows of kings retirement for forty days in a room entirely closed to the light of day. On the twelfth day Mary had the windows opened, and on the fifteenth set out with Bothwell for Seaton, a country house situated five miles from the capital, where the French ambassador, Duroc, went in search of her, and made her remonstrances which decided her to return to Edinburgh, but instead of the cheers which usually greeted her coming, she was received by an icy silence, and a solitary woman in the crowd called out, "'God treat her as she deserves!' The names of the murderers were no secret to the people. Bothwell, having brought a splendid coat which was too large for him to a tailor, asking him to remake it to his measure, the man recognised it as having belonged to the king. "'That's right,' said he. "'It is the custom for the executioner to inherit from the condemned.' Meanwhile, the Earl of Lennox, supported by the people's murmurs, loudly demanded justice for his son's death, and came forward as the accuser of his murderers. The Queen was then obliged to appease paternal clamour and public resentment, to command the Earl of Argyll, the Lord Chief Justice of the Kingdom, to make investigations. The same day that this order was given, a proclamation was posted up in the streets of Edinburgh, in which the Queen promised two thousand pounds sterling to whoever would make known the King's murderers. Next day, wherever this letter had been affixed, another placard was found, worded thus. As it has been proclaimed that those who should make known the King's murderers should have two thousand pounds sterling, I, who have made a strict search, affirm that the authors of the murder are the Earl of Bothwell, James Balfour, the priest of Flisk, David, Chambers, Blackmester, Jean Spurns, and the Queen herself. This placard was torn down, but, as usually happens, it had already been read by the entire population. The Earl of Lennox accused Bothwell, and public opinion, which also accused him, seconded the Earl with such violence that Mary was compelled to bring him to trial. Only every precaution was taken to deprive the prosecutor of the power of convicting the accused. On the 28th of March, the Earl of Lennox received notice that the 12th April was fixed for the trial. He was granted a fortnight to collect decisive proofs against the most powerful man in all Scotland. 
but the Earl of Lennox, judging that this trial was a mere mockery, did not appear. Bothwell, on the contrary, presented himself at the court, accompanied by five thousand partisans and two hundred picks fusiliers, who guarded the doors directly he had entered, so that he seemed to be rather a king who was about to violate the law than an accused who comes to submit to it. Of course there happened what was certain to happen, that is to say, the jury acquitted Bothwell of the crime which everyone, the judges included, knew him to be guilty. The day of the trial, Bothwell had this written challenge placarded. Although I am sufficiently cleared of the murder of the king, of which I have been falsely accused, yet, the better to prove my innocence, I am ready to engage in combat with whomsoever will dare to maintain that I have killed the king. The day after, this reply appeared. I accept the challenge, provided that you select neutral ground. However, judgment had been barely given, when rumours of the marriage between the Queen and the Earl of Bothwell were abroad. However strange and however mad this marriage, the relations of the two lovers were so well known that no one doubted but that it was true. But as everyone submitted to Bothwell, either through fear or through ambition, two men only dared to protest beforehand against this union. The one was Lord Hurries, and the other James Melville. Mary was at Stirling when Lord Hurries, taking advantage of Bothwell's momentary absence, threw himself at her feet, imploring her not to lose her honour by marrying her husband's murderer, which could not fail to convince those who still doubted it that she was his accomplice. But the Queen, instead of thanking Hurries for this devotion, seemed very much surprised at his boldness, and, scornfully signing him to rise, she coldly replied that her heart was silent as regarded the Earl of Bothwell, and that, if she should ever remarry, which was not probable, she would neither forget what she owed to her people, nor what she owed to herself. Melville did not allow himself to be discouraged by this experience, and pretended to have received a letter that one of his friends, Thomas Bishop, had written him from England. He showed this letter to the Queen, but at the first lines Mary recognised the style, and above all the friendship of her ambassador, and giving the letter to the Earl of Livingston, who was present. "'There is a very singular letter,' said she. "'Read it. It is quite in Melville's manner.' Livingston glanced through the letter, but had scarcely read the half of it when he took Melville by the hand and drawing him into the embrasure of a window. "'My dear Melville,' said he, "'you were certainly mad when you just now imparted this letter to the Queen. As soon as the Earl of Bothwell gets wind of it, and that will not be long, he will have you assassinated. You have behaved like an honest man, it is true, but at court it is better to behave as a clever man. Go away, then, as quickly as possible.' It is I who recommend it. Melville is not required to be told twice, and stayed away for a week. Livingston was not mistaken. Scarcely had Bothwell returned to the Queen than he knew all that had passed. He burst out into curses against Melville, and sought for him everywhere, but he could not find him. This beginning of opposition, weak as it was, nonetheless disquieted Bothwell, who, sure of Mary's love, resolved to make short work of things. Accordingly, as the Queen was returning from Stirling to Edinburgh some days after the scenes we have just related, Bothwell suddenly appeared at the bridge of Gramont, with a thousand horsemen, and, having disarmed the Earl of Huntley, Livingston, and Melville, who had returned to his mistress, he seized the Queen's horse by the bridle, and with apparent violence he forced Mary to turn back and follow him to Dunbar, which the Queen did without any resistance, a strange thing for one of Mary's character. 
The day following, the Earls of Huntley, Livingston, Melville, and the people in their train were set at liberty. Then, ten days afterwards, Bothwell and the Queen, perfectly reconciled, returned to Edinburgh together. Two days after his return, Bothwell gave a great dinner to the nobles his partisans in a tavern. When the meal was ended, on the very same table, amid half-drained glasses and empty bottles, Lindsay, Ruthven, Morton, Maitland, and a dozen or fifteen other noblemen, signed a bond which not only set forth that upon their souls and consciences Bothwell was innocent, but which further denoted him as the most suitable husband for the Queen. This bond concluded with this sufficiently strange declaration. After all, the Queen cannot do otherwise, since the Earl has carried her off and has lain with her. Yet two circumstances were still opposed to this marriage. The first, that Bothwell had already been married three times, and that his three wives were living. The second, that having carried off the Queen, this violence might cause to be regarded as null the alliance which she should contract with him. The first of these objections was attended to, to begin with, as the one most difficult to solve. Bothwell's two first wives were of obscure birth, consequently he scorned to disquiet himself about them. But it was not so with the third, a daughter of that Earl of Huntley, who had been trampled beneath the horse's feet, and a sister of Gordon, who had been decapitated. Fortunately for Bothwell, his past behaviour made his wife long for a divorce with an eagerness as great as his own. There was not much difficulty, then, in persuading her to bring a charge of adultery against her husband. Bothwell confessed that he had had criminal intercourse with a relative of his wife, and the Archbishop of St. Andrews, the same who had taken up his abode in that solitary house at Kirkerfield to be present at Darnley's death, pronounced the marriage null. The case was begun, pushed on, and decided in ten days. As to the second obstacle, that of the violence used to the Queen, Mary undertook to remove it herself, for, being brought before the court, she declared that not only did she pardon Bothwell for his conduct as regarded her, but further that, knowing him to be a good and faithful subject, she intended raising him immediately to new honours. In fact, some days afterwards she created him Duke of Orkney, and on the 15th of the same month, that is to say, scarcely four months after the death of Darnley, with levity that resembled madness, Mary, who had petitioned for a dispensation to wed a Catholic prince, her cousin in the third degree, married Bothwell, a Protestant upstart, who, his divorce notwithstanding, was still bigamous, and who thus found himself in the position of having four wives living, including the Queen. The wedding was dismal, as became a festival under such outrageous auspices. Morton, Maitland, and some base flatterers of Bothwell alone were present at it. The French ambassador, although he was a creature of the House of Guise, to which the Queen belonged, refused to attend it. Mary's delusion was short-lived. Scarcely was she in Bothwell's power than she saw what a master she had given herself. Gross, unfeeling, and violent, he seemed chosen by Providence to avenge the faults of which he had been the instigator or the accomplice. Soon his fits of passion reached such a point that one day, no longer able to endure them, Mary seized a dagger from Erskine, who was present with Melville at one of these scenes, and would have struck herself, saying that she would rather die than continue living unhappily as she did. Yet, inexplicable as it seems, in spite of these miseries, renewed without ceasing, Mary, forgetting that she was wife and queen, tender and submissive as a child, was always the first to be reconciled with Bothwell. Nevertheless, these public scenes gave a pretext to the nobles, who only sought an opportunity for an outbreak. The Earl of Mar, the young prince's tutor, Argyll, Athol, 
Glencairn, Blindley, Boyd, and even Morton and Maitland themselves, those eternal accomplices of the Bothwell, rose, they said, to avenge the death of the king, and to draw the son from hands which had killed the father and which were keeping the mother captive. As to Murray, he had kept completely in the background during all the last events. He was in the county of Fife when the king was assassinated, and three days before the trial of Bothwell, he had asked and obtained from his sister permission to take a journey on the continent. The insurrection took place in such a prompt and instantaneous manner that the Confederate lords, whose plan was to surprise and seize both Mary and Bothwell, thought they would succeed at the first attempt. The king and queen were at a table with Lord Borthwick, who was entertaining them, when suddenly it was announced that a large body of armed men was surrounding the castle. Bothwell and Mary suspected that they were aimed at, and as they had no means of resistance, Bothwell dressed himself as a squire, Mary as a page, and both immediately taking horse, escaped by one door just as the confederates were coming in by the other. The fugitives withdrew to Dunbar. There they called together all Bothwell's friends, and made them sign a kind of treaty by which they undertook to defend the queen and her husband. In the midst of all this, Murray arrived from France, and Bothwell offered the document to him as to the others, but Murray refused to put his signature to it, saying that it was insulting him to think he need be bound by a written agreement when it was a question of defending his sister and his queen. This refusal having led to an altercation between him and Bothwell, Murray, true to his system of neutrality, withdrew into his earldom, and let affairs follow without him the fatal decline they had taken. In the meantime the Confederates, after having failed at Bolwick, not feeling strong enough to attack Bothwell at Dunbar, marched upon Edinburgh, where they had an understanding with a man of whom Bothwell thought himself sure. This man was James Balfour, governor of the Citadel, the same who had presided over the preparation of the mine which had blown up Darnley, and whom Bothwell had met on entering the garden at Kirk of Fields. Not, not only did Balfour deliver Edinburgh Castle into the hands of the Confederates, but he also gave them a little silver coffer, of which the cipher, an F crowned, showed that it had belonged to Francis the Second, and in fact it was a gift from her first husband which the Queen had presented to Bothwell. Balfour stated that this coffer contained precious papers, which in the present circumstances might be of great use to Mary's enemies. The Confederate lords opened it, and found inside the three genuine or spurious letters that we have quoted, the marriage contract of Mary and Bothwell, and twelve poems in the Queen's handwriting. As Balfour had said, therein lay for her enemies a rich and precious find, which was worth more than a victory, for a victory would yield them only the Queen's life, while Balfour's treachery yielded them her honour. End of chapter 3, part 2